Hi, thanks for stopping by. And it's Josh. Dharma Punks, New York, Tuesday. And um, just a couple of notes. Our next in-person gathering will be the first Tuesday of November. So November 7th, if you're in New York, Brooklyn, you want to drop by, please do. Grand Street Healing, Tuesdays at 7. Somatic experiencing deck that Kathy's put together, and I think they should be available. If you'd like to check them out, go to her website, or you can look at her Instagram. Everything I do, the teaching and counseling, is entirely by donation. Any little bit helps. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the PayPal and Patreon information is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. And I'm going to jump right in because tonight's talk, Annihilation Anxiety, the Fear of Death. I've given quite a number of talks on existential psychology and also the importance of reflecting on death to make authentic choices in life. And to be sure, tonight's talk will have a little bit about that. But the theme of tonight's talk is about understanding what exacerbates annihilation terror and what are the practices that reduce anxiety, rumination, dread. I would note that it's not a mistake that human beings have degrees of annihilation terror because it provided an evolutionary advantage. The more hypervigilant we are of threats, to the more inclined we are to protect ourselves and not to take undue risks, which in terms of evolution would have meant greater numbers of us would pass on our genes. Our species drive to survive is coupled with an awareness of self identity that then can create an overwhelming anxiety of death. The fear of death is an outcome of becoming aware of oneself as an individual. The more we identify with the stream of inner chatter running through our heads, known as thoughts, the more we believe ourselves to be utterly unique and that there will only and ever be one me, and sooner or later that totally unique me will no longer exist. To be sure, uh, Eastern cultures have been found to have significantly less death anxiety, and one clear reason is that individuals don't define themselves based on what sets them apart, or makes them unique as individuals. In Southeastern countries, individuals, when asked to talk about themselves, very often talk about their affiliations, the clubs they belong to, the workplaces, the families, and so on. Whereas in the West, when asked to uh, talk about oneself, uh, studies show we tend to focus on the things that set us apart. You know, I came in first in my class in uh, math, or I was the only one in my high school who uh, accomplished X, or I have a 
very specific psychological disorder or whatever. So in countries and cultures where the emphasis is upon the uniqueness of the individual, the greater the degree of uh, anxiety about mortality. And of course, in Eastern cultures, death is treated as a transition, a reminder to commit to enjoying life rather than in the West where um, death is uh, uh, seen as an obligation for those who remain to only express mourning. So death is associated even in the West with a personal failure. Uh, somebody clearly made a mistake, and that's why they're not here. They uh, they smoked, they drank, they drive drove their car too quickly. Uh, it it's not seen as a natural, inevitable transition in life, and clearly in Western consumer cultures where there's a great emphasis on youth. Signs of aging, sickness, and death are uh, uh, generally regarded by others as repellent. And so when one faces one's own aging or sickness, there is a sense of shame that can go along with it. Now, a major factor in uh, death anxiety is regret. And in fact, if you read the works of those who spend the most time with the dying, uh, people like Ware and Halifax and Butler, regret is a constant theme in those with greater death anxiety. Those who feel they've accomplished their goals, who started families, who wanted to start families and did, or wanted to, say, take up painting and did, or traveled the world, uh, et cetera, or developed some kind of um, skill, have diminished fears of death. And in the works of friends, I have many friends, I've volunteered at hospice and have done hospice work, but I have many uh, people I know who do it uh, all the time professionally, and they mention that those who... Uh, have greater regrets and suffer more in hospice are those who stayed in unrewarding jobs for fear of financial insecurity or stayed too long in unhealthy relationships out of low self-esteem or out of fixation with somebody who's emotionally unavailable. People who were unwilling to commit to important choices in their life, like pursuing a new career. And people, of course, the greatest regret that leads to anxiety is those who didn't prioritize on connecting with loved ones. So that's a major factor, but there are other major factors in what causes anxiety around one's mortality. Uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. So I think we're all aware that the world will go on after one's body and consciousness ends, uh, even if you believe it, it transitions to a greater consciousness, as in many Eastern spirituality, um, there is a sense one will miss out, that loved ones will connect 
great world events and great arts will occur in one's absence after one's no longer here. Um, certainly, this is one reason why stu uh, studies show that individuals become less afraid of death as they grow older, because the more experiences we have in life, the less we fear missing out. In other words, if you've been to enough parties, you don't worry so much that there will be parties after you die because you've already been to enough. Now, studies by Rachel Varen and who, what was her other name, uh, uh, Mendes, um, found that attachment styles also uh, exacerbate or alleviate um, mortality fears. Uh, individuals who have secure attachment have less anxiety as they feel more intimately connected to loved ones. And so they anticipate being comforted when they face uh, illness, uh, aging, and death. Whereas those uh, who don't have uh, secure attachment tend to have anxiety about either being sued, the ability of others to soothe and comfort them, or that the people that really matter will show up and care for them or be uh, soothing. Those, another wonderful study I read, which uh, I thought was very interesting, is that those on the extreme ends of the religious or spiritual spectrum are the least afraid of death. So on the one hand, atheists, and that's a category I fall into, are more relaxed in the sense uh, we have a surety uh, that it comes for all, that it isn't personal. Uh, on the other hand, uh, those who are extremely religiously devout have a fervent belief in an afterlife and that rewards will follow. But it's those in the middle that aren't sure that uh, have no conviction either way that tend to have the greatest uh, anxiety. Uh, so that was a pretty interesting uh, finding. So I guess I would say make up your mind. <laughs> and uh, so either way. Uh, either you fervently believe or you're fervently in the atheist uh, corridor. So um, what happens as a result of all this anxiety is, of course, terror management. Uh, this was an idea that was started by Ernest Becker, I don't remember when, uh, who wrote famously The Denial of Death. Um, and then other psychologists like Sheldon Solomon and Jeff Greenberg, who also wrote, wrote on the role of death in life, um, noted that so many of our most uh, unskillful and harmful behaviors are motivated by a desire to distract ourselves, to not think about our vulnerability and our mortality. 
So not thinking or reflecting or contemplating death is associated with signal anxiety, which is a greater reliance on addictive substances. It's also associated with hoarding. Uh, people who amass and collect uh, needless shop, shop needlessly, extravagantly, constantly have a stream of Amazon packages arriving are very often protecting themselves from the feelings of vulnerability and the sense of anxiety of loss. Uh, studies show that uh Terror management is associated with manic celebrations, raging at loss, seeking power as an ego scaffold, seeking power, for instance, trying to attain uh, power in one's career at the expense of others. And Sheldon Solomon, who you can read, uh, who's a psychologist who's written a lot on this and done a lot of research uh, has shown that the greater one's inability or refusal to reflect or contemplate their mortality, the more inflexible they are, the more xenophobic, more the greater the tendencies of narcissism, as well as taking credit for other people's work. So to be sure, there's uh, significant drawbacks uh, in not being or having some kind of practice of reflection of our mortality. In fact, I would say it's of central import that we don't avoid the topic. It's not morbid or goth at all to reflect it's not even needlessly distressing if it's done with balance, but very, very beneficial. Um, death anxiety is significantly lower, for example, among hospice nurses than nurses and doctors who work in other fields. And there's multiple studies like Graham and Deloach and Mallet, et cetera, who have shown this. Um, there was a study of United States funeral directors who spent a lot of times with those grieving and families who've lost ones, and those funeral directors had significantly less anxiety or distress around death. Um, after administering fact sheets that forced people to reflect, on their own mortality, psychologists, uh, well, I can't remember their name, uh, found greater reflection and acceptance led to less anxiety and greater perspective on it. And there was a study being present in the face of threat or something like that, that people who reflect on death are more mindful, more compassionate with others, and less defensive. So, <clears throat> to be sure, avoiding contemplating one's mortality leads not only to greater anxiety and terror, 
but it also leads to more antisocial behaviors and also a greater degree of shame when one has to confront one's own signs of aging and so forth. So there are ways to contemplate and learn from mortality in ways that don't lead to emotional overwhelm or distress. Obviously, the middle path in Buddhism is not to dwell on any theme for long uh, periods of time, but to set aside uh, daily practices that can last as little as a minute to five minutes, where one reflects, if not a daily practice, a weekly practice, where one reflects skillfully on the universal characteristics of having a human birth. Um, and I'm going to talk about what those reflections and practices look like. I would note that if we are to make any authentic choices, as I mentioned from the beginning, and I've noted in many other talks, it's essential to weigh our decisions in life against our lack of guarantees and the potential for wasting time, which denial leads to, uh, the regret, again, of putting off connecting with loved ones or pursuing creative goals or traveling is, uh, again, one of the most significant factors in what causes distress um, as one has to deal directly with one's mortality. So, you know, as we'll talk about again, but look, reflections like looking back in the future, will I be grateful that I made this choice? How will I feel in the future about this decision is an important reflection. It is uh, from my own work in hospice and volunteering with those with stage four metastatic cancer, it's a mistake to assume that um, it's when we're actually, one is actually dying, that we'll actually then have time to prepare for death. Because when it arrives, if we haven't prepared, if we haven't reflected and made choices that we don't regret, our, our anxiety, our regret will be amplified. Um, there's not really any opportunity to prepare when one is actually in the actual process. So, um, and I would say it's important to reflect that our last years or months could begin at any time. They might have already begun. And yet at the same time, even if one has a uh, very, very painful diagnosis, it's also entirely possible that you'll outlive people who are seemingly very healthy. So unpredictable is, as they say, this thin mortal coil. So find a middle path, neither avoiding nor indulging or steeping in or ruminating. Practice the reflections in a measured way to be sure the titration practice of bearing in, which means 
focus on the reflections for a little while and then back off, let go of the themes, return to soothing images, body sensations, sounds, uh, sensations around you. Um, in my experience, the volunteering uh, at hospice and those who had illness was um, not a full-time job. I did it pr- probably uh, an hour uh, at a time and uh, never more than one or two uh, hours a week. That for me was enough to one feel enormous benefit from the practice. Other people do far more work in hospice volunteering than I certainly did. Uh, I was fortunate enough to also teach at a hospice training um, uh, uh, program uh, for over a decade. And that was very meaningful as well. So um, in the Dharma, uh, the teachings start with a spoken reminder of what's inevitable in life. It's in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, which is the Buddha's first teaching. The Buddha begins his all of his teachings with this uh, meaningful, beautiful talk, um, which is goes something like, here, friends, is the great truth of life. Birth is painful. Aging is painful. Death is painful. Sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair are painful. Being stuck with the unloved while separated from those we love is painful. Not getting what we want is painful. And so the Buddha is normalizing these experiences and reminding us that we are not, when it comes to the most important events in life, none of us are unique or individual. The Buddha then, uh, in another teaching about uh, his life, then goes on to say, when I was rich, young, and surrounded by splendid objects and beautiful people. I lived in ignorance. And as a result, when I saw a corpse, I was horrified as I was oblivious to the fact I too will die. And he goes on to add, to be frightened of death means I was living in an undignified way. So many of the Buddha's teachings directly addressed this theme. And one of the more famous suttas, the Abhaya Sutta, the Buddha teaches to a Brahmin that there are ways to alleviate one's fear of mortality. Um, He notes finding unconditional sources of joy in life uh, especially such as uh, meditation, connecting with loved ones, etc. He notes not to confuse one's sense of self with either one's thoughts or one's body or physical appearance. And he notes also spending time engaging in activities that are beneficial to others. 
So in other words, once again, we're hearing this theme to reflect, to acknowledge, to not avoid. And clearly the most important teaching in Buddhism on the contemplation of death and the alleviation of fear is in the Marana Sati, which literally means Marana is death and Sati, mindful awareness. So contemplating one's mortality and the nature, the universal nature of life, which is to old, to age, to experience illness, to experience death, to experience separation is uh, foundational. In fact, it's just as foundational to Buddhist practice as meditation, compassion, um, acting from a nonviolent practice. So Marana Sati is considered to be a daily practice. And the reflections are, one, the Buddha says there's five uh, facts that one should bear in mind every day. One is I'm subject to aging. I will age. Two is I am subject to illness. I will become sick. Uh, three is I am subject to die, to death. I will die. Four is I will change and be separated from what is dear to me. So acknowledging that not we might not be separated from everyone or everything that's dear, but we will experience separation. And the fifth reflection is to reflect on one's choices and not to leave regrets. The Buddha says, I am the owner of my actions. Whatever I do for good and the bad, I will live in the result of my actions. My actions are all I truly own. So those are the five daily reflections. Again, to remind oneself to be born into a human body means we are subject to aging, illness, death, that we will be separated from uh, people we love and that we only really own our choices that we've made in life. So um, in the Marana Sati, Sometimes people will imagine their bodies feeling heavier, <clears throat> their vision blurring. Uh, they might reflect on themselves as if uh, each breath they take is their last. And these are very common Buddhist practices. In addition, in the Buddhist canon is a very... A uh, new practice that's very powerful. Uh, it was conceived by the meditation teacher Stephen Levine, who spent 25 years providing palliative support for those in hospice or who were very, very sick. And in the 1990s, Stephen Levine spent a year as if it was his last year to live. And from that practice, he wrote a book called um, A Year to Live. And this is a practice that is now taught 
in different, uh, sometimes different uh, Buddhist institutions. It's a wonderful book in that it, while it has some woo to it and some metaphysics to it, it also has some very practical uh, solutions or preparations that are very, very beneficial. And I was fortunate enough to practice many of these back about 20 years ago uh, uh, when it, well, I was part of a program that was being taught. So some of the practices that are mentioned in A Year to Live are one, writing a will for oneself. Uh, this is already a culturally enshrined practice, but it is important as it's a reminder of one's uh, vulnerability, one's ever-dwindling time. And in writing a will, it doesn't have to be a legal will. It could simply be writing out, for instance, who will, who would you want to have your most cherished possessions uh you know from your favorite clothes uh, albums musical instruments heirlooms and so forth uh other practices are writing one's eulogy and some even in the practice if you're doing a year to live practice with other people you might read it aloud and even while you read it aloud envision you are attending your own memorial service Forgiveness is essential, of course. There's nothing one regrets more than carrying one's resentments with them and not connecting and restoring important relationships that have been lost to meaningless uh, or inconsequential uh, debates or feelings of frustration. Forgiveness is one of the most, when it's done uh, skillfully and with boundaries, is one of the most important spiritual practices and one of the most overlooked. Levine mentioned, as I recall, also helplessness practices, which um, I believe he even suggested spending a day having someone feed you without moving your arms, which... I never did. It seems like a rather uh, extreme practice, although to be sure, that's an outcome that might well happen. Uh, other practices might be to simply put uh, sound uh, blocks in one's ear to practice the sense of dwindling hearing or even to... Um, uh, have someone lead one around while uh, one's sight is obscured. There's a dead for a day practice, which is, uh, as I recall from his uh, suggestions, imagining that one has passed and that your spirit uh, seeing the world for a final time and looking at the world from one's absence. Uh, so these are just some of the many practices that are noted 
in the book. And again, there are very often a year to live groups. So if that sounds like a practice or something worth reflecting on, I hope you'll pursue it. Um, I would say in lieu of tonight's talk, it's always important to question um, any thoughts that tell us we don't have enough uh, money or credentials or skill to pursue one's passion, that we're too old to make important changes. One is never too old to to, uh, pursue that which is meaningful, whether uh, anything from changing careers to um, reconnecting with people from the past to getting sober to uh, there's never, it's never too late to prioritize what's meaningful. Uh, So these are uh, what some of the reflections I hope we'll take away from tonight's talk. And so what we're going to be doing in tonight's meditation, I hope you'll join me next, is um, both uh, first cultivating ease and calmness. And then for those who want to join, we'll do some of the reflections, including the Marana Sati that I mentioned in tonight's talk. So I hope that that was worth reflecting on in some way. And whenever you feel uh, inclined, um, I would invite you to uh, find a comfortable seated position and closing your eyes. And uh, just bringing your attention to the sensations of your body. reeling in awareness from the world around and making a promise to whatever thoughts or concerns that followed us through the day or uh, we brought to tonight's practice that we can return to them, but we just are going to take a short 20-minute break from uh, reflections about anything that's not happening right here, right now, and how to, one, truly settle into 
this moment without wanting to be anywhere else, to truly land in our life as it is. To let go of any feelings in the body of needing to get things done. See if you can find where that those remaining bits of momentum, of busyness, of unsettledness is still present in the body. Very often I find that there's still this kind of, of there's something else that needs to be done might be a feeling that is grounded in tightness in my lower neck muscles or even in my forehead. So try to breathe into and soften and relax any of those felt sensations of that is not okay just to land in your life. The edginess inclining the body to breathe slower, to exhale slower, to greet these practices with a soft belly, a round belly, breathing into a round belly. Trying to find a place in your body where you're aware of the breath as physical sensations lower in your body than where you sense your thoughts are occurring. Thoughts generally feel like they're somewhere behind and above one's eyes floating somehow just the very top or above one's head. And so lowering awareness into the body, getting some distance from that stream of <clears throat> words and images. And sometimes it's very helpful to visualize something that's soothing as a way to not leave any space for memories or images 
that are activating. So on one's own, sometimes our minds will visualize events from the past that were unpleasant or something in the future we might be unhappy about, even a worry. So cultivating an image that's soothing Could be an image of a place or a person. If thoughts are largely a stream of ideas and words, then having a simple Buddhist mantra to occupy one's attention. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Sabe sata suki hantu. If the mind feels very busy, also you can include sounds from your environment as a way to get some distance from the intrusion of other concerns, anticipations, predictions. So in short, let's for a little while just practice landing in this moment, bringing the attention back again and again to the sensations of breathing in the body, which we're going to incline to be as long, especially in the exhalation, as possible. If visual images are intrusive, then visualize a single image of a place or a person that is soothing. Just hold it in mind. If, on the other hand, we're being plagued by intrusive thoughts, then a very simple phrase that we repeat. May I be happy, peaceful, and free of distress or suffering. And so we'll just sit here quietly for a little while.
So, on to the Narana Sati practice. Holding in mind an image of yourself in today or in the future, or any image of yourself that you can conjure. Or simply use the phrases as something to really not just treat as ideas, but as truths. I am of the nature to grow old. I will age. And just either think the phrases or just conjure images that reflect this truth. I am of the nature to become sick. I'm subject to illness. I will become sick. I am subject to death. One day I will die. I am of the nature to be separated from what is dear to me. I will experience loss. I am the owner of an heir to my actions. Whatever I do, for better or worse, I live in the outcome of my choices. They are all I truly own.
As we breathe out, note that every exhalation could be our last. And bring the awareness to the body and its all of its processes that allow us to breathe in and out that give us life at this moment, however unreliable. And while one day this body will stop breathing, right now it is. Bearing in mind our fragility, our lack of guarantees, when we look back on our life, what has brought us the most joy? What choices do we feel the proudest of? Just bear in mind one or two. And when you bear in mind these choices, what can you learn from the choices that you've made that you feel a sense of esteem from? Were they choices that were examples of courage, creativity, putting others' needs above what was easy for us. What is the nature of the choices we've made that create the greatest sense of pride, esteem? What can we learn from these choices? Finally, how would we want to be remembered by others? Kind or dependable, insightful. Courageous, creative. Whatever qualities you most want people to remember you by, know that these are the qualities to keep evident in the important choices we make moving on.
And at this point, I'm going to bring the practice to a close. Just try to find a comfortable sensation in your body. Reconnecting with the vibrancy and the sense of being alive, cherishing this time. <laughs> 